Welcome to the Upstream Public Health Podcast, Thinking Upstream, where we talk about the prevention issues of the day. Now your host, Jill Hudson, and today's guest, Frank Chalupka. All right, we're here today with Dr. Frank Chalupka, and uh, we're going to have a what I portend to be a really interesting conversation today, continuing on our series of uh, talks about tobacco taxes. And uh, for those of you who are tuning in for the first time, Upstream Public Health got together and came up with some things that we think everyone should know about tobacco taxes. Uh, Tobacco taxes in any given state uh, could be a hot topic, should be a hot topic. Um, and here in Oregon, there's a lot of discussion about tobacco taxes right now. But regardless of where you are, tobacco taxes are an important tool for public health. And so we asked uh, Dr. Chalupka to join us today. Um, I've known uh, about and have uh, talked to Dr. Chalupka several times in the last uh, couple of decades. Uh, but in preparation, hi, hi. Hi, Dr. Chalupka. Sorry, I, I forgot to say hi. Hi, Jill, and you can call me Frank if that's easier. Okay. All right. Thanks, Frank. Okay, so Frank, in preparation for this interview, um, I did some research on your uh, work. Uh, I did some research on you. Um, actually, I just put your name into Google, um, and I wanted to give like a really nice bio, but there was so much there. There was so much there, and it's only a 20-minute podcast, so I don't think we have time to go over the entire compendium of your work in tobacco taxes. You are a research professor at the uh, University of Illinois at at Chicago, and um, you have gotten awards from the World Health Organization. You've written numerous articles on tobacco taxes. I think anyone who has ever taken a peek into tobacco taxation has seen your name. So I'm going to summarize it a little bit this way. From my perspective, you are an international tobacco economics rock star. Do you have anything to add to that? Uh, that's very flattering. Um, it's um, an area I've been working at for almost 35 years, and uh, yeah, it's it's nice to uh, nice to hear you say that. Well, I think it's actually true. I mean, we think about uh, <coughs> legacies. So, if we're uh, let's just let's let's just uh, go with you're an international tobacco control rock star. Is there anything else though that you want us to know from your bio? I mean, do you what are your favorite things in your bio? No, the work that we do goes beyond tobacco. So um, I have looked at a variety of different health-related behaviors. So looking at things like drug use and excessive drinking and diet and physical activity and trying to look at how economic incentives and and policy um, can help shape behaviors in a way that leads to healthier outcomes. Yeah, it's so important. And um, But that's all interesting. Let's get back to you for a second. So I was thinking about this. Um, if you, so we have established pretty pretty clearly. Um, I think it's been established. I think you have established that tobacco taxes, when 
um, done properly when they're significant enough to reduce prevalence of tobacco use among youth or consumption among adults, they save lives. Um, I think that's, I, I, would you agree with me? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, when I started working on this years ago, I think the perception was that people were addicted to tobacco and changing taxes or prices wasn't going to have any impact on, on their use, um, that they'd figure out how to continue to use. But one of the things that we've seen, you know, dozens of studies in the U.S., hundreds of studies around the world show that when you raise tax, when you raise price by any significant amount, you really do get smokers to quit um, very effective in keeping young people from taking up tobacco use and has huge public health benefits as a result. And I want to talk to you a little bit more in depth about what that significant amount looks like. But before we do that, uh, so you've been really, really uh, instrumental in guiding the science and in having the rigor applied to this issue, the economics applied to this issue that have led to governments uh, being willing to raise tobacco taxes. Um, And so I guess I'm wondering from your perspective, is this just like, do you feel really good about yourself? Like, do you have like a tote board of lives that you've saved? Is there, is, is there anything like running through your mind uh, when, you laid, when you go to bed at night? Are you like, okay, this was like, I'm up to 1.5 million. <laughs> no, I haven't kept track of it in that way. But, um, you know, it is one of the things that's really gratifying is to see the work that we do um, really get paid attention to by policymakers and to see the advocacy community really using the findings from the research to, to drive policy forward. So, um, yeah, I mean, the fact that the work that we do has a real impact in the real world is why it's um, something that I really enjoy doing. Well, we are really grateful uh, for uh, for your work. And uh, I have actually a personal example that I'll share a little bit later. But um, as you... I, 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 you uh, do this work internationally. You've done this work for 35 years. Um, what are, what, when people talk to you about tobacco taxes or have questions or maybe have concerns, what do you think is, uh, and let's talk about policymakers, not just people. When you talk to policymakers, what are their main concerns about tobacco taxes or what's the concern you get the most? Um, you know, I think the, the tobacco industry is out there um, and its allies are out there pushing all sorts of economic arguments about things that will happen, bad things that will happen if you raise taxes. Um, the like one what? that we hear about, um, yeah, the one that we hear about the most internationally is that if you raise tax, it's automatically going to lead to illicit trade in tobacco products. Um, smuggling, you know, it's a big issue that comes up in the U.S. as well. Um, you hear concerns about what the impact is going to be on the broader economy and how it's going to put people out of work. Um, and there's a lot of concern about the impact on the poor in particular, um, given that tobacco use tends to be concentrated in lower income populations. Okay. Yeah. So those sound like really hard issues to, to study and to understand well. So let's start with smuggling. What, What's the rationale or what's the concern there? And what can you tell us about what you know about the potential for smuggling or um, I love your I love your terminology, illicit trade uh, when people when uh, governments raise their tobacco taxes? Yeah, so the concern there is if you raise the tax, it's going to increase prices and 
smokers are going to turn to other markets where cigarettes might be more cheaply available and smugglers are going to um, bring in cigarettes from, from countries or from states in the U.S. where cigarettes are, are cheaper um, and that the tax then isn't going to have its public health impact. It's not going to be effective in raising revenues. Um, but if you look at the experiences around the world, what we see is is that it's not tax and price levels that drive illicit trade. It's really the, the strength of governance, um, how effective tax administration is, how free from corruption governments are, um, how good their border controls are, things like that. Um, and then when we look in the U.S., what we see is is that there's you know very little evidence that raising taxes leads to big increases in tax avoidance, tax evasion, illicit trade. Um, so we've done some work just looking at what the experiences are in states that raise their tax um, and show that, you know, every state that raises its tax by any significant amount sees a big increase in its revenues. And you see very little change in revenues in the states around it. So um, that tells me that there's not a lot of cross-border activity going on in response to the tax increase. Okay, so let's drill down here just a little bit because I want to be really clear about what you just said. Um, so has there been to your knowledge, a circumstance where a jurisdiction, whether it's a it's a city or a state in the United States of America, has there been a circumstance where they have raised their tobacco taxes by a significant amount and not seen revenue from that due to smuggling? No, it's exactly the opposite. Every state that raises its tax, every locality that raises its tax by any significant amount sees an increase in revenue and sees real reductions in tobacco use. And that happens even when there are um, real opportunities for avoiding or evading the tax. Yeah, okay. Uh, In Oregon, uh, not to get too Oregon-specific, but you know that we have some border states here. Most states have border states but for us, it's not as much of an issue because our states are way lower than California and Washington, where we have populations close to the borders. Obviously, Portland, very close to Washington state. Um, and then Idaho has a tax that's, that, that if we raise our tax would be could be significantly lower. But even that, uh, the, the potential there is... Is there's no evidence that there's going to be a huge smuggling operation. But what I hear you say is that governments do need to do a, a, some work to make sure that that doesn't happen. Well, there's things that they can do to try to, to minimize any of that from happening. But, you know, again, it's, it's not going to be as significant a problem as the opponents of the tax increases make it out to be. So, it does create some incentives when you have big differences across borders for people to cross borders and buy cigarettes or to smuggle them in from the lower tax and lower price jurisdictions. But um, it's it's a relatively small problem, and it's something that um, does not again undermine the, the public health or revenue impact of the tax increase. Okay, so you also said macroeconomic impact. First of all, what is macro macroeconomic impact and how does that play into arguments that you're hearing against tobacco taxes? Right. So the idea is that if you raise the tax, that's going to have broader economic effects. It's going to lead to job losses. It's going to hurt small businesses that sell tobacco products. Um, so the idea, you know, if, if you raise the tax, that's going to lead to less, less tobacco use, and that's going to lead to then job losses in, in sectors that depend on tobacco. Um, but then those will spill throughout the economy. So, you know, affect tobacco farmers, it'll affect tobacco manufacturers, but then if 
affect distributors and retailers um, and particularly hit the, the small businesses, the convenience stores that sell tobacco products. Um, so we've done a lot of research trying to address those arguments, trying to look at what actually happens. But wait a minute. Um, so um, go ahead. not to jump in with my two cents worth, but I'm going to take that from a macroeconomic to a microeconomic level. And uh, before we hear about your research, I just want to bottom line this from my perspective. It, that actually sounds kind of silly to me, but maybe that's just me as a consumer in the United States when something gets more expensive and I decide not to buy it, it turns out I just spend my money on other things. So how, how do people make an argument that like if people aren't buying tobacco, which in so many ways is such a great thing, uh, obviously, uh, what are they doing with that money? No, you've hit exactly the, the point that I was going to make. So if people don't buy tobacco, it's not like that money just disappears. Um, you know, it goes back into buying other goods and services. Um, so, you know, there's a grain of truth to the argument that the people in the sectors that depend on tobacco, tobacco farmers, tobacco manufacturers, um, are going to be um, somewhat affected by the tax increase. Um, but even that's not, not really the case anymore. Um, tobacco farming, the, the tobacco leaf markets have become global. And if you can't sell your tobacco leaf in the U.S., you're going to be able to sell it somewhere else in the world. Um, and manufacturing has become highly automated. So there's very, very, very few jobs at this point to, in tobacco manufacturing. Um, but what happens is, you know, like you said, people take the money that they used to spend on tobacco, spending on something else, and that's going to create jobs in other sectors. And then I think even more importantly, governments take the tax revenues that they get from those tax increases and they spend them on things that tend to be very labor intensive. Um, you can think about, you know, spending on local um, police departments and education and and healthcare and things like that that uh, create a lot of jobs. Um, so the research that we've done, the research that others have done shows that, if anything, there's a net positive effect of these kinds of taxes. They lead to increases in jobs, um, not losses of jobs. Yeah, and potentially services that people need that can further, like you said, further grow the economy. Um, and then, so uh, not to get too deep into the woods, into the weeds uh, here, if we pair that, just that, uh, the, the money, the revenue from tobacco taxes going back into the economy to pay for things that people need and want, um, if we pair that with the, uh, the cost savings that come from having fewer people sick and dying from tobacco. Uh, have, have you looked at that at all? Oh, yeah. I mean, we try to estimate what the impact of tax increases would be on, on things like healthcare spending, um, Medicaid spending, things like that. And what you do see is because people are healthier um, as a result of not using tobacco, there's going to be less spending on healthcare. There's going to be less spending through uh, Medicaid programs. Um, and then there's been some really nice work from the World Bank um, in a number of different countries, not in the U.S., but in countries around the world, um, where they've shown that um, low-income smokers in particular benefit from the tax increases. They're the ones that respond the most, um, give up tobacco use the most in response to higher taxes. And because they spend less on healthcare, because they're healthier and more productive, their incomes go up, um, that these tend to be very progressive taxes when it comes down to it. 
Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit more because I think that was sort of uh, leads us into the third point you you made when uh, you were talking about the the key arguments or the key concerns that you might hear uh, when you're uh, explaining how tobacco taxation works. Um, so how t- tell tell us more about how these uh, taxes affect uh, pop- different populations. Yeah, so um, different populations respond more to taxes than others, um, and the two that respond the most are young people and people on lower incomes, um, and that's you know not surprising given that um, you know the less money you have to spend on things, the more you're going to respond to changes in the prices of anything you consume. Um, so what we see is is low income smokers are the ones that are most likely to to quit or to try to quit um, to cut back on smoking in response to tax and price increases. And because of that, um, they're going to end up healthier. They're going to spend less on, on health care over time. Um, and as a result of being healthier, they're also going to be more productive. Um, so what you see is, is their incomes go up over time. And, you know, people perceive tax increases on tobacco as being very regressive, hitting the poor the hardest. Um, but it's actually the case that when you start to look at the health impact, when you look at the financial impact over the long term, um, they, they are very progressive policies. One thing that I hear is in in that particular argument, if you take it from the population level or more macro level and talk about individual households uh, that um, where where one or two parents are smokers, they're spending um, hundreds of dollars a month on cigarettes because they're addicted. Um, not because they want to, but because they're addicted. And then you make them more expensive, they're still addictive. And then they might buy uh, cigarettes instead of food or healthier food. So how about when you look at it just kind of from that family, from that this is an individual who has to make a really hard choice and they're addicted to something. How does that strike you? No, I think that that is the the real concern. So again, low income smokers are going to try to quit more um, when taxes and prices go up, but there are going to be a lot that are addicted and that aren't able to quit on their own. Um, and that's you know where I think it really comes down to how the revenues from the tax increase get used. And I think okay. there's a real obligation for governments to to spend some of those um, revenues to try to help poor smokers in particular quit people that don't have access to cessation medications and counseling and things like that. They're going to make them more able to quit. Uh, so I think, you know, how those revenues get spent is a key factor. So putting revenues back into tobacco control programs, uh, programs that support cessation um, efforts for low-income smokers in particular, are going to be important, uh, but then also thinking about um, other programs that are specifically targeting low-income populations. Okay. Uh, so you can think about putting, you know, some of the money back into um, public health insurance programs that expand access to healthcare for low-income populations. So um, that helps lessen the financial impact on on those addicted um, poor smokers who aren't able to quit. Okay. All right. Yeah, I've said this before, but uh, something that that crops up to me is when people, you know, put this in terms of this binary um, of, you know, people might buy tobacco instead of food. I always want to say if people don't have enough money for food, let's make sure they have enough food, not uh, make sure that they still have enough money to buy tobacco. I don't know if that makes sense to you or it's probably poorly stated, 
but we do have options as a society and continuing to sell tobacco um, because people are addicted to it, sell it at reasonable prices, doesn't seem like the best option uh, moving forward as a society. It doesn't seem like a good reason to continue to sell tobacco to me. Um, Of course, I don't want anyone to have to make that choice. So what I hear you saying is that when tobacco revenues are used in ways that support uh, people who are uh, financially less advantaged, who are addicted, so that they can get the support they need to quit, that overall this lessens their economic burden. So that's really fascinating. And I got to say, I hadn't quite exactly thought that through, that thread all the way through to its um, what feels like, you know, apparent conclusion. Um. So when you, uh, when you're uh, talking to um, uh, policymakers, when you're talking to uh, tobacco control advocates, when you're talking to tobacco industry influences, what do you feel is the, the, the hardest thing for people to understand? Like what's that thing where if there's anything, but what's that thing where people are like, oh, I hear you, but it's just really hard to believe. I think the one thing that, that's um, contradictory to a lot of people is the idea that if you raise the tax, you're going to have these um, big reductions in smoking and at the same time be able to generate new revenue. Um, it seems, seems counterintuitive that, you know, fewer people smoking is going to lead to more revenues. Um, but it ends up being the result of, of just how much of a response you get to those tax increases. So um, in the U.S., taxes tend to account for a relatively small share of price. Um, so you can have big tax increases that lead to modest price increases. Um, and then those lead to less than proportional reductions in, in how, how much people smoke. Um, so you end up getting both. You end up getting the, the increase in revenues, but at the same time, uh, real reductions in tobacco use, real improvements in public health. Okay. Uh, okay. Good to know. So people who are planning to advocate for a, an increase in a tobacco tax, that might be one of the things they really want to bone up on. Uh, read read some of your studies and make sure they really know their science there. Uh, a couple other things I want to make sure that we get your perspective on. In an earlier podcast, uh, Mark Meany, uh, a senior attorney at the Tobacco Control Legal Consortium, talked a little bit about tax parity. Um, do you do you know anything about that? Oh yeah, that's an issue that we've been looking <laughs> at a lot. You're kidding! <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> yeah. So uh, tax parity. What is it good for? Um, it, it you well, know, I guess it? let's start some, with what it is. Yeah. So I mean, the idea is that you want to tax at least similar tobacco products in the same way and at the same rates. Um, which I think makes a lot of sense. Um, so, you know, you can think about what we've seen historically in the U.S. Um, you know, cigarettes tend to be taxed relatively high, but other tobacco products, things like little cigars, roll your own tobacco um, that are good substitutes for cigarettes get taxed at lower rates in a lot of states. Um, and what happens then is if you raise the cigarette tax but don't raise the other taxes accordingly or by the same amount, um, that that gives smokers an incentive to switch to the the products that are taxed at lower rates, 
um, to help avoid the tax. Um, so, you know, that doesn't then generate the public health impact that you want. It doesn't generate the revenue impact that you want. Um, so the idea there is that you want to tax, um, you know, similar products, I think, at, at similar rates. Um, a more complicated question is what you do with, with some of the, the products that have emerged in recent years. So you think yeah. about things like vaping products and, and how you want to tax those. Um, and to the extent that these products are considerably less harmful than combustible tobacco products, cigarettes and cigars, things like that, um, then there may be an argument for taxing those products at lower rates. Um, and this is something that we've been trying to look into just, you know, how substitutable these products are, how people are using these products, um, what happens with kids use of the products in response to tax increases. Um, and, you know, it's, I think, a, a bit more of a contentious issue in the public health world about how vaping products in particular should be taxed relative to cigarettes. Um, but, um, you know, I, I have my thoughts on that. Oh, great. Let's hear your thoughts on that. Um, so my argument is that if you're going to tax vaping products, which I think makes a lot of sense, um, some of the research that we've done shown, shows that kids' use of these products are very sensitive to price even more than their cigarette uses. Um, and given the explosion in vaping among kids, yeah. having a tax would be an effective way of, of keeping kids from taking up vaping. Um, but my argument would be that you want to then also have a big cigarette tax increase at the same time mm-hmm. uh, so that you um, discourage the use of, of all products. Um, you try to promote smokers quitting. And for smokers that aren't able to fully quit because of their addiction, um, you have a lower cost, less harmful alternative that they could switch to. Um, and that, you know, at the end of the day, that would then, I think, be very effective in keeping kids from taking up any tobacco product use, any nicotine product use, um, while at the same time discouraging smoking um, and then promoting substitution to less harmful products for people that are addicted and can't quit entirely, uh, which would have a big positive public health impact. Um, I totally agree with you almost. What if I What if I argued a little and said that for people who want to quit smoking, there are FDA-approved and uh, uh, research-proven effective strategies for quitting smoking, and that's what we want to set people up to do. Um, we know a lot about how to help people quit smoking or help people quit tobacco, and wouldn't it um, be better? Uh, and this isn't a straw man argument. I actually, I actually think this, so um, let's, let's argue about it. Uh, wouldn't it be better to, instead of taxing uh, electronic cigarettes at a lower level, wouldn't it be better to um, tax them um, high enough to uh, to price people away from them and at the same time help smokers quit with evidence-based tobacco, quit tobacco cessation programs? Oh, absolutely. You want to have people try the evidence-based programs first. Um, and, you know, I think part of the, part of the issue goes back to what we were talking about earlier is that a lot of people don't have access to, to those um, products and to the counseling that they need. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what you want to do is try to drive people to the, the most effective ways of quitting. Um, and, you know, ideally that, that's what would happen. Um, but unfortunately, you know, a lot of people don't have access to, to those um, cessation products and then have access to the counseling they need. Um, or they've tried it and it didn't work for them. Um, so, 
you know, it does seem the evidence is emerging um, that electronic cigarettes, um, vaping can be effective for some people in getting them to quit, at least as effective, if not more effective than some of the FDA approved medications. Um, so I think for people that, that have tried these other approaches or don't have access to these other approaches, having something on the market um, that, that is an effective way for them to quit uh, would, would be a very helpful thing for public health. And you can set up taxes, like I said, in a way that, that um, helps maximize the public health benefits by trying to encourage all cessation, but at the same time, for people who can't fully quit and, and aren't able to take advantage of some of the other things that are out there, um, you know, this is an alternative that, that could be very effective for them. Yeah, okay. And at the same time, making sure that the, their, the prices are high enough to... Uh, to bring down the current problem epidemic per Surgeon General uh, of youth uptake of these products. Absolutely. So again, that's you know these products should be taxed. I mean, kids again. The, the work that we've done shows that they're very very sensitive to the price um, for these products. I, you know, I think a lot of it's this sort of experimental use, and if you push the prices up high enough, then then kids aren't going to be experimenting yeah. with them. Yeah. So. You just said if you push the price up high enough. So let's talk about this. How how do you figure out how much to tax, um, and uh, to make sure that you're you're hitting um, the two things that you want to hit? You want to get some revenue for the state, but you also want all of those public health benefits and those benefits to individual yeah. families. Uh, and people who will take this opportunity to quit cigarettes. What's what is the magic formula for figuring out how much to tax tobacco? Yeah, there is there is no magic formula, but um, in general, what we're recommending is that states raise their taxes by at least a dollar a pack, um, and that's going to lead to big enough price increases. Um, that will have a meaningful public health impact in terms of, you know, usually leading to reductions in, in smoking of, of tens of thousands of people, depending on the size of the state, um, more in, in bigger states. Um, so and it's a also dollar, a tax. Sorry. Uh, so a dollar a pack. Um, did you, did you just like, how'd you come up with that number? Are you just kind of like, Oh, a dollar sounds good. It's a nice even number. So how do, how do you know? No, it's, it's, I mean, part of it is, is looking at how the industry, tobacco industry has responded, um, to tax increases in the past in terms of passing them through to price. Uh, part of it is in looking at how they spend their marketing dollars, um, which these days almost all go towards promotions to reduce the price of cigarettes. Um, mm-hmm. so you've seen in states that have raised their taxes by smaller amounts, they can come in with promotions that, that um, offset the impact of the tax increase. Uh, but when you start talking about a dollar a pack increase, that, that's going to be high enough that they're not going to be able to come in and fully offset that. Um, so the price increase that you get at the end of the day is is big enough to then generate these public health impacts that we've been talking about. Um, and at the same time, it's going to be big enough to raise real revenues for the states that they can then use to support their tobacco control efforts to support other public health programs. So uh, we're talking in Oregon about a $2 per pack. And we should say that when we're talking about uh, taxes, a lot of times we use the shorthand of cigarette taxes and then a further shorthand of uh, tax per pack. So in Oregon, um, we're talking about a $2 per pack increase with 
uh, similar or commensurate increases in other tobacco products and also talking about uh, taxing electronic cigarettes or uh, other uh, electronic smoking devices. What do you think about a $2 tax? You know, a $2 pack per pack increase with the same sort of increases on other products um, is going to be even better. It's, it's going to be very difficult for the industry to really offset that in any meaningful way. Um, it's going to generate big reductions in tobacco use um, and, again, generate a lot of revenue that can be used to, to further your public health goals. So, Frank, you um, uh, are, in my experience, able to uh, pretty accurately predict some of the outcomes of a $2 tax. And I'm not going to ask you to, to do that right now on the spot unless you have a calculator in your head for the state of Oregon or any any state. But you... You've been able, um, through the incredible amount of research that you've done, to somewhat accurately predict what the revenue will be, what the public health impact will be. Uh, what the, by public health impact, I mean what the drop in consumption will be. How many youth are uh, going to be less likely to start using tobacco? Uh, did I leave anything out in in your prediction model? Yeah, we also predict things like healthcare costs, okay. uh, Medicaid costs, things like that. Um, and yeah, we have we have a model that has um, been developed over the years based on the research that we've done and that others have done um, that really allows us to to do these sort of projections at the state level. Um, and I do have them. I've, I've done them for Oregon um, in anticipation of this call. Um, so if you're interested in talking about the specifics, I can I can it. let you know some of that. Let's hear it. Yeah, so in terms of the public health impacts, um, if, if the tax was to go up by $2 a pack, uh, we estimate that almost 20,000 fewer kids would eventually become smokers in the state. Wow. Um, and get over 31,000 adults um, who are currently smoking who would quit. Oh, my gosh. And then when you start to look at the long-term health impact of that, um, you're looking at um, almost 14,000 fewer deaths um, caused by smoking in the current population in Oregon. Wow. Um, so, you know, real wow, public let's health stop. benefits. Wait, let's stop. That's 14,000 people alive right now in our current population who will gain a significant portion of their lives back if we pass right. a $2 tax. Exactly. Oh um, and if you, think, if you think about the numbers, and I think the, the you know, average loss of life is, is over 10 years yeah. for a smoking attributable death. So you're talking about... You know, really big impact. Oh my gosh! Yeah, we've talked about this before. On the again, when we talk about families and when we talk about uh, how to have strong communities, having our uh, elders, having our parents and our grandparents along uh, around for longer is immeasurable. Um, so it's it's their lives and it's the lives of the people who love them and need them. And 14,000 is, that's huge. Uh, so interrupt, I interrupted you, um, got really excited there. Uh, anything else? Well, that, that's the public health impact. But then on, on the other side, um, we're talking about almost $140 million in new revenues in the first year. And those mm -hmm. are revenues that are going to be sustained over time. Um, they will go down as smoking continues to go down, but they'll still be substantial many years out. Um, but then also significantly less money spent on, on health care. Mm -hmm. um, so we estimate just in the first five years, it would be almost $15 million in Medicaid savings for the state. 
Um, and then over time, when you really start to look at the, the long-term impacts, uh, we're looking at about a billion dollars less in healthcare spending um, over time as a result of the uh, reductions in smoking that you yeah. get. Yeah, it's absolutely, it's, it's just stunning. Um, so I've, I, you get to this point in a conversation, and uh, I, I know it's obvious to our listeners. I think it's obvious to anyone who's ever met me. Um, I am a big fan of tobacco taxes. Uh, increasing tobacco taxes in Oregon um, through a ballot initiative was one of the first things I did in tobacco control it's one of, um, I believe, my life's finest accomplishments because of some of the things that you um, just outlined. But I, I get to this point, and I always ask, this seems like a no-brainer. It's a, it's a, we're going to help people. We're going to raise revenue. We're going to uh, float out a really progressive tax that uh, will have a tremendous impact why is it so hard to do? No, because there's huge profits involved. So, you know, the tobacco companies have come into to states like Oregon um, and other states where there's ballot initiatives in particular and just spend a huge amount of money trying to raise these fears about all the things that are going to happen if you raise the tax um, that we talked about earlier. And again, the evidence shows that, you know, there's they're either completely false arguments or there's, you know, at best a grain of truth in them and that they're greatly overstated. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they, you know, obviously see their, their, uh, sales at stake, their profits at stake, and they're going to spend what they can to, to try to, um, you know, persuade, um, mislead consumers, mislead voters, um, into opposing the tax increases. Yeah. Um, they spend a lot of money um, trying to influence politicians the same way. So, um, yeah, I mean, huge vested interest, economic interest at stake that, uh, you know, they'll spend what it takes to try to beat the taxes back. Yeah, so it's an uphill battle, but definitely winnable and definitely um, worth worth the fight. Um, so uh, I, if we could have like just a little bit of a, a fan moment here, uh, back to your rock star status. Um, uh, we were talking about your models. We were talking about, you know, the ability to really accurately predict some of the outcomes of tobacco taxes a few years ago uh it's been it's been a few years ago now um i was uh uh my firm was working with a very very tiny jurisdiction in alaska and they decided to increase their tobacco taxes it's a state where local jurisdictions are not preempted from raising tobacco taxes. So this little, and I mean tiny town, said, you know, we want to increase our tobacco taxes. We think it's the right thing to do. We want to increase our tobacco taxes by $2. Can you help us figure out how much revenue we would raise and, you know, uh, help us understand so that we can uh, convince our policymakers and also feel reasonably assured that this is the right thing to do for us. And I remember this moment of, oh my gosh, this is a really tiny place. At that time, $2 tobacco taxes were not of the norm. Um, I think maybe only New York had done them, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and uh, we couldn't be wrong. Like personally, ethically, I was like, if we tell this little tiny town how much revenue they can raise with this tobacco tax and let them know what the effect on their population will be, 
at that micro level, there's hardly any margin for error. error. And if you're wrong, you can really hurt, you can really hurt something. <laughs> you know, if they're planning on that money uh, and then they don't have it because uh, the model doesn't work, um, it, it, it would really have been um, hard for me to swallow as a uh, public health advocate and a public health practitioner. So um, we used the models that you've developed. We worked with um, the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. I know that you work a lot with them on helping to promulgate really good science and to push really good science out about tobacco taxes. And they did increase their tobacco tax by $2. And I was kind of sweating it out for a year um, until those revenues uh, started coming in from their tobacco taxes. And I got to tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm looking um, at uh, my business partner right now. I think it was like spot on. For that, uh, I, I always feel like a sense of gratitude to you. <laughs> um, because, you know, you, you, you never want to hurt people with these things. It also said to me, this is, this is something that we can feel really confident about. There's not a lot of... Um, reason to wring our hands and say, oh, is this going to work for Oregon? Oh, we should probably stop and listen to this other argument. Uh, so it, it, you know, I, I, hopefully not everyone has to have like a personal example where they have personally gone through this in order to believe it. I always believed it before that. I know that this uh, is a really tried and true public health uh, tactic. But I also wanted to let you know, personally, this is my opportunity to thank you for uh, having our backs on that particular tobacco tax initiative. No, it's great to hear. It's, uh, yeah, I do a lot of this sort of work with, with states and with communities. And um, you know, like I said, I don't always necessarily go back and, and hear about the successes, but it's, uh, it's what makes the work worth doing that, that you're able to take that and, and really make a difference, make policy change happen, and, and as a result, improve public health. So, uh, yeah, congratulations, and uh, glad I was able to help in some way. Well, congratulations to them, really, because it takes a lot of courage uh, for any policymaker to step up to the plate and to take the, um, the hits that come from doing this kind of bold, innovative, important uh, work. And for them, it was innovative. It was, it was new to their community. So um, all the credit goes to them. We just sort of uh, helped them look at the work that you had done to understand what the numbers would look like for them. Um, is there anything else you want us to know about tobacco taxes? Yeah, I think the other thing that, that needs to be kept in mind is that these are taxes that people really support. Um, you know, there's this perception that people don't like taxes, but tobacco taxes, I think, are different than other taxes. Mm. Um, and you even see in a lot of places that a majority of smokers um, support the tax. Um, you know, they understand what it was like to become addicted and, and, you know, to the extent that the tax is very effective in keeping people from taking up smoking. Um, they're going to support it for that purpose, um, but they'll also be even more supportive, again, when the money goes back into other efforts to really help smokers quit and, and to reduce tobacco use overall. So um, very popular um, among smokers in addition to non-smokers. Um, that's something that really cuts across um, pretty much every every socioeconomic political um, line, um, but broad support for these kind of taxes and policymakers need to hear that and 
and need to understand that this is this is a policy that people are going to support. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that uh, what you've helped us understand today are all the reasons for that, um, for that support. And then also some of the, the, the dangers, the things that we can expect to hear or any jurisdiction working on tobacco taxes can expect to hear from tobacco companies in their effort to put profits over people. And uh, I always like to just boil this down to this is an industry who sells a product that kills people when used exactly as directed. They have done everything in their considerable power because their wealth buys them so much power. They've done everything in their considerable power to mislead uh, and lie to the American people and now globally uh, in order to keep those profits high. And uh, it's, uh, it, it just can't be said enough that um, when you have an opportunity to put people and families above industry, especially an industry that hurts people, you got to jump in with both feet and take that opportunity. So I thank you for giving us this uh, tutorial today. Absolutely uh, fascinating. And um, even though I think about these issues all the time, uh, there's some things today that I really uh, learned and want to, you know, make sure that I'm rock solid on a couple of the concepts, uh, especially around, you know, smuggling and some of those other things that that just crop up. And you want to make sure that you understand them well enough to support policymakers in making good decisions. Well, thanks for the opportunity to be on with you and to, to talk about this. Like I said, I've been uh, working on this for almost 35 years. And, um, you know, the fact that... Uh, People are taking the work that we've done and, and making a difference, making policy change happen is, is uh, great to see. Um, how many articles have you published around tobacco <laughs> I, and economics? Um, probably at least a couple hundred. I think right. I'm you know, over, over four or five hundred total on everything, but tobacco is still the focus of most of the work I've done. So four or five hundred articles. Um, all right. Uh, that's a pretty impressive number. I think, you know, yeah. it seems impressive to me. Like, uh, uh, sometimes I have a hard time writing out my lunch uh, request. So uh, <laughs> I'm pretty impressed. Yeah, I'm lucky to have been working with a lot of good people for many years. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're a very, very productive team. Um, are you willing to come back to come back and talk to us about obesity prevention? I understand that uh, you were part of an Institute of Medicine committee that wrote uh, the Bridging the Evidence Gap in Obesity Prevention, a Framework to Inform Decision-Making. This is something else that Upstream Public Health is working on, we're very interested in. Um, can we have you back to talk about obesity prevention someday? No, oh, sure. That's um, been the second biggest focus of the work that we've been doing over the last probably 15 years. All right. Well, now I just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a hard time letting you go. Uh, so uh, I will, though, because you've been so generous with your time and uh, also given us something to look forward to um, in the next little while. Uh, so uh, talking more about tobacco taxes and talking about obesity prevention, 
uh, with Dr. Uh, Frank Chalupka, something to look forward to in all of our futures. And for today, again, I just want to thank you so much, uh, A, for the work you've done, and B, for joining us to talk about it today. Well, thanks for the opportunity and look forward to talking with you again soon. This has been the Upstream Public Health Podcast, Thinking Upstream, with your host, Jill Hudson, and today's guest, Dr. Frank Chalupka. For more information about Upstream Public Health, please go to the Upstream Public Health website at upstreampublichealth.com. To join the conversation, visit Upstream Public Health on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash upstreampublichealth.